Hello there. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We want to hear what you think about Ripple. Please help us out by filling out a short, anonymous survey at ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. That's ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. From the months of April to July 2010, from the blowout to the plugging of the wellhead, BP spent around $93 million on marketing. It was a threefold increase from the prior year. They invested in magazine and newspaper ads in the Gulf and 60-second national television spots. BP said at the time this was to keep residents informed and to maintain transparency about its decision-making. Gulf residents I spoke to wanted real transparency from BP, the government, the Coast Guard, but they don't believe they ever really got that. This experience left a mark on them. I felt a lack of trust in institutions hovering over most of the conversations I had. And there seemed to be a lack of trust in me at times. They wanted to know why was I doing what I was doing? Why was I looking into this story specifically? I think those are fair questions to ask. My father wakes up really early. I go to bed really late. We talk in the twilight hours. Are you just going to bed or what? <laughs> um, I can't sleep. Okay. Everything going okay? I interviewed a woman, I think, two days ago. Um, she's a widow of a coordinator for the cleanup workers of the spill. And she was telling me this story about how when he would come home from working, his skin would be orange. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm laying here just now and I had a memory and I, I don't know if it's real. I seem to remember one time you, multiple times, you coming home and you would walk in the door and they don't it, don't touch me. <laughs> Stay away from me until me. I take a shot. That's that's right. Don't touch me. Get away from me. And what I always thought, or or you know, I guess I'm remembering what I was thinking when I was a kid. I thought that it was because you smelled bad. No, but now I wasn't. It, <laughs> no. it was it wasn't because you were sweaty. Okay. Well, so what the what the hell was it, Dad? Um, typically. We did a lot of emergency sewer work. You know, it's just, it's, it's a germ fest. You're, you're working with, you know, human waste. That's why you, you noticed, or if you remember, I always made sure my shoes were pretty much in the basement. I never really brought the shoes in the house and stuff just because I didn't want to contaminate the house with anything. Well, I couldn't afford two pairs of shoes, but I used to try to keep it separated. But I guess, it, uh, you know, I'm, one of the things that I'm wondering about is, well, the the origin of your cancer, I suppose, and wondering if it was a result of some occupational exposure. And I'm wondering if you wonder about that too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I I do. I don't. I don't necessarily think that there's any way you could prove 
<laughs> one way or the other. I uh, was there stuff I was exposed to in construction? Yeah, absolutely. I was exposed to uh, silica sand and sandblasting, which can cause silicosis. I was exposed to burning of metal, even though the metal was supposedly, you know, cleaned or treated. You were still dealing with, with a lot of, you know, inhaling smoke from beams or a structural steel that we were demolishing. And I used to run a torch when I worked with your grandfather, my father. And, you know, you might use a dust mask, but we didn't have respirators and all the stuff I learned about when when I had my own companies and stuff. My guy used to have the, the battery-powered respirators, and they basically, you know, they had positive pressure masks on them, so they didn't inhale anything except pure air. And we, you know, had none of that when I worked with your grandfather. So as far as, you know, where it comes from, how it happened, I don't know, Daniel. It's It's, it's not... Uh, you know, it's it's counterproductive to dwell. You know, I can dwell on many things about the cancer, but where it came from, it, it's a lost cause. But <laughs> right. yeah, my father's sick, and I suspect it's from something he was exposed to from his time working construction. I told the people who asked me that deep down. This is probably why I was being drawn to their version of the Deepwater Horizon story. In their version, people who worked on the cleanup were sick. I was hearing that people died. It's the story that the Gulf seemed to want to tell. Sheree Kerner's husband, Frank Stewart, fell ill eight years after he worked on the cleanup, long after the national public had moved on. But for other Vessels of Opportunity workers I spoke to, their health was impacted much sooner, almost immediately. And still, it was difficult for them to get the attention they needed. From Western Sound and APM Studios, I'm Dan Leon. This is Ripple. In the making of this series, we contacted BP with a request for comment on a list of statements and questions pertaining to what you're about to hear. BP did not respond to our request. I'm going to ask you about essentially the, the, the history of your health problems from the moment that you're, you know, out there doing the actual cleanup, you know, to now. Okay. What has been your health experience since getting the call from BP that it's time to go out and clean up the oil. Well, actually, um, it started even before I got a call from BP. This is John Moss. He was in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, when the oil spill hit. Within a few days of uh, the oil spill, uh, fumes would blow on shore, and I, uh, I rode motorcycles the whole time, my whole life. And uh, <clears throat> my bike rides on the beach would be extremely painful and I would have problems with my sinuses and just heavy allergy type issues, you know, and then it never got better. John had recently gotten his captain's license and was about to start chartering, but the oil spill interrupted all that. So John signed up for the Vessels of Opportunity program. It was a very hard choice of pay your mortgage, or follow your gut and get the hell out of there. 
Uh, I lived my life following my gut, and I, I wish I was in a financial position back then to have done that. On the VU program, John worked nearshore, in the marshes. Part of his job was wildlife rescue, trying to prevent turtles and birds from dying in the oil. He described this work as... Very interesting and um, not very successful. Explain. Everything was dead. What'd you do with all the dead turtles and birds? Left them there, painted an orange X on them and left them. You painted an orange X on a dead turtle and left them where? Floating in the water. How is that helpful to anyone? That was our instructions. What are they going to do with a dead turtle with an X on it? You'd have to ask somebody from BP. I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. That's the first time hearing of this. Okay. You, okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) hold on. So you come across a turtle. Mark the GPS coordinates on it. Or sometimes when we found a turtle that had an X already on it. Um, we were ordered to stay with it for hours and wait for another BP boat to come and pick it up. When he wasn't tagging deceased wildlife, he and his deckhands manually cleaned oil. We would actually put our boat in that oil, lean over the sides, so all those fumes would get in your face. And those fumes would cause a lot of irritation to your skin and eyes, and inevitably a lot of vomiting would occur. So, I mean, did they ever, did they ever tell you like, hey, look, vomiting is just part of this job. Like you're going to get sick. Sorry. Actually, they attributed the vomiting to a side effect of heat stroke or heat exhaustion. Beyond getting ill from the fumes, John says he also had a bad reaction on his skin. I started getting these white uh, lesions all over my skin. Um they would come up about as thick as a nickel and I would actually peel them or cut them off if I could. You know, our chest will burn and eyes will burn and, you know, we felt dizziness. Symptoms also crept up out on the water for Caleb Bro, a cleanup worker based in Louisiana. Uh, and throats were burning. We were all hoarse at the end of the day. Um, and we were all, we all, we didn't really, you know, everybody wants to be tough guy and all that. I know it, it concerned me for sure. We all at the dock speaking to each other with horse. Like, it was just something that, you know, I knew wasn't right. I had already, you know, towards the end of the program, started feeling pretty rough. This is Joey Yerkes, a cleanup worker who is based in Destin, Florida. You know, we come home with bad headaches at the end of the day. You know, we were having nasal problems. You could tell that We just, you know, we just shouldn't be out in it anymore. In the last episode, you heard Joey arguing with a Coast Guard official and a BP representative at a community meeting in 2010. So don't tell me that that stuff in that foam line is not oil. It is oil from the Horizon site. Joey accused both entities of ending the VU program prematurely. He claimed that the beaches weren't clean or safe for anyone. Joey didn't trust the waters 100%, but in early September, he had to go back out, fish, and earn his living. So I went out on the water, and I broke out my cast net like I do every night. I go out in the middle of the night is when I would do my fishing. And that first night, I threw the cast net for maybe 45 minutes, an hour. 
And I knew something was going on because my skin was burning. But we're used to jellyfish and, you know, things like that. But then the burn got worse and it turned into a, a pretty hard stinging sensation all over my whole body. I started looking, make sure there was no jellyfish that I wasn't aware of. And it got bad. I mean, it got really bad. I could feel it on my skin, my head, you know, because when we cast net, we wear that net on our entire body. And next thing you know, I'm feeling nauseous. And from there, I started puking over the side. So I didn't know what was going on. And I became so sick, I could barely get back to the dock. I remember throwing up so hard that I started puking up blood. Blood was coming out of my nose. I had blood coming out of my ears. I was bleeding from everywhere. And I barely got back to the dock. Did um, you think you were going to die? Yes, I did. Absolutely 100%. I didn't know what to do. Soon after this, Joey says he experienced something that really frightened him. The oil was pouring out of my system. When I got out of the bath and it would drain, I could write my name in the sludge around the tub. Oil and whatever the hell was inside of me making me sick, the hot water, the hot baths that I was taking was pulling it out. So I was sick. I started getting pains throughout my body. As the years passed, Caleb Bro's symptoms worsened. One def definite thing, specific thing I can remember, I felt like a pressure in my head, like constantly, like if, if I, the best way to describe it, if you, you know, if you ever hang your head off the edge of a bed or something like that, and you just feel this pressure, if you're upside mm -hmm. down, you feel this pressure building in your head. Yeah, yeah. That was a constant pressure that I started to have like on a regular basis. And John Moss's symptoms were now debilitating. Strenuous work was causing uh, asthma attacks, and I've never had an asthma attack in my life. Here's something that stuck out to me. Multiple cleanup workers reported a very specific trigger that would provoke their symptoms. Being around certain chemicals, like just putting gas in my vehicle or pouring gas in a lawnmower or, you know, just everyday chemicals that you're around all the time, it was hard for me to be around them. Like I would get very dizzy and nauseous. I, I will have an asthma attack if I'm around exhaust fumes, particularly diesel exhaust fumes. Okay. I don't know why, but that will cause uh, a tremendous amount of stress right away. Right away, okay. Yeah. So do, do you avoid it? Like the plague, yeah. <laughs> for Joey Yerkes, Symptoms continued to evolve in these disturbing ways. I was so sick that I was actually having memory problems. I couldn't remember how to get places. I couldn't remember where I had to go that day when I woke up. Can you talk to me about those moments of brain fog or these terrible, of memory terrible? Terrible. You don't remember anything. And it lasted for quite a while. My house was full of sticky notes. <laughs> really? Yes, it was. So it wasn't every what day. Kind of, what kind of stuff was on the sticky notes? I mean, just, you know, um, 8 o'clock, you have to do this. You know, 10 o'clock, you have to do this. Remember, you're on the diet. You have to, you can only eat this. I mean, you know, I had, I just had stuff that um, it, it really scared me. I had times where I didn't remember my daughter's name. As I listened to their stories, I didn't know what to think at first. These symptoms seemed so varied. Memory loss, vomiting, asthma, pains, tinnitus, a substance seeping out through the pores. What I really wanted to know was what their doctors thought was the root cause of all this. 
But when Joey broached that topic, it opened another can of worms that I didn't see coming. He alleged that in the early days of his symptoms, he couldn't find a physician who was willing to treat him. Joey told me about going to a doctor's office and practically begging for treatment. He initially turned me away and said that he wouldn't see oil spill patients. And I was adamant and I said, all I'm asking is that you see me and tell me what's wrong with me so that I can figure out a way to get better and figure out who I can see. Can you give you a reason why he didn't want to see He had a sign on his door, we are not seeing BP oil spill, uh, patients with BP oil spill related issues. He had a sign on his door. I couldn't fathom why an MD would refuse to treat patients who were suffering just because their issues may have been related to the BP oil spill. Joey's physician at the time never responded to a request for comment on this. But I still wanted to speak to a doctor, any doctor, who was willing to talk about treating cleanup workers in the months after the oil spill. And that turned out to be much more of a challenge than I expected. We'll be right back. Ripple comes to you from APM Studios. APM stands for American Public Media. We're a public media show. What that means is we're driven only by the mission to find the truth and bring it to you. And you can donate to support us in that mission. In fact, donations are one of the ways that we're evaluating the success of this first season of Ripple. So if you like what you're hearing, chip in any amount that feels right for you. Just go to ripplepodcast.org slash donate. Let's see what we've got here. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com ripple50. All right, I am set for the week. First, the cleanup workers I spoke to painted a picture of a chaotic response to the BP oil spill. Then they told me they were sickened with chronic conditions. And then some told me they couldn't find medical care for those conditions. The more claims and accusations they made, the more obvious it was that I needed some help. And now's about the time I should introduce you to Betsy Shepard. My name is Betsy Shepard, and I'm a Louisiana native. I'm an amazing Cajun dancer, but for purposes of this project, I'm a journalist, and I spent many years working as a health reporter and an environmental reporter here in Louisiana. Betsy is Ripple's senior reporter. She lives and works in California now, but Louisiana is home to her. She joined me in the Gulf about halfway through the trip. Were you able to get any sense of why uh, finding a doctor getting diagnosed was so difficult for some of these cleanup workers? 
So I reached out to people that expressed difficulties about finding medical care. And I, you know, got a list of names of doctors and I just started calling and emailing and cozying up to secretaries at different medical hospitals and, uh, you know, just nothing, nothing, just radio silence, not even an acknowledgement of my calls. And that's when I realized that I had my work cut out for me. The person Betsy eventually found who treated cleanup workers and was willing to speak to us wasn't located in the Gulf. He was up in Michigan. I came across this guy named Dr. Michael Harbett. Uh, I'm a doctor of medicine. Well, I just retired from active clinical practice. I think I've seen over the last 30 years literally thousands of patients with exposures to toxic uh, materials. of all, all types. Eventually, he went on to serve on Michigan's Agent Orange Commission. He was treating Vietnam vets who were exposed to Agent Orange. Betsy, can you hang on a second? I have to take on some medicine. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, hang on. So, yeah, you may have noticed that Dr. Harbit's voice is a bit shaky, and that's because he suffers from Parkinson's. He actually warned me about this, but despite the physical hardships of, you know, doing a long interview like this, he insisted on doing it. He said it was incumbent upon him because... I really want to pass this knowledge on, and that's very difficult um, because there aren't many physicians who are that interested in it. Dr. Harbit's field, Occupational and Environmental Medicine, was relevant to the BP oil spill. But it wasn't exactly a popular specialty in 2010, and it still isn't today. The number of specialists in the field has actually declined over the last 20 years or so. Now, part of the reason is is that it's it's a high-risk specialty uh, in that when you find somebody is sick from the environment or the workplace, somebody's going to get very mad because it got done to them. Now, that having been said, it doesn't go to attracting people into the, into the field. Um, and these big corporations are not hesitant to extract retribution um, if that's what they have to do. When Harbit says it's a high-risk specialty, he means a high risk of getting dragged into court. If an occupational and environmental doctor says that someone's been harmed on the job, the employer might just subpoena the doctor, depose them, make their life generally miserable. So if you get into medicine to cure the sick and not spend your life in a deposition room, you'd probably choose a different specialty. Dr. Harbit can't say for sure that this is why general physicians in the Gulf wouldn't want to treat patients who were working for BP. But what he can say for sure is that sick coastal residents were having a hard time finding care. He knows this because in the aftermath of the spill, he started getting calls in Michigan. So I, I got some phone calls within a couple of weeks asking if I was interested in seeing patients. And I said, yeah, but I'm not interested in, in doing legal work. Um, it's going to be required. But if I can help with, by providing care and by uh, giving, giving what advice I can, um, I'm, I'm willing to do that. 
I wasn't happy to do it, but it had to be done. He starts treating people, but it was difficult because Louisiana has very strict rules where you have to have a state-issued license to treat people in Louisiana. Other states have similar laws. So people that can afford it start flying up to Michigan to be treated by Dr. Harbit. Um, here are some of the findings that I made in patients who had been exposed to the Gulf spill. There was uh, sinusitis, uh, keeping in mind that sinusitis does not necessarily mean infectious. It can also be toxicologically based. It's an inflammation of the sinus. Um, chronic pharyngitis, uh, gastrointestinal issues, shortness of breath, and respiratory issues. Um, there were skin diseases, including rashes and ulcers. There was a lot of psychological trauma. In addition to seeing patients, Dr. Harbit also has another connection to this story. In 2010, he's contacted by a group of lawyers who ask him to consult on a lawsuit that's being taken against BP. In his role as a consultant, he tries to address the lack of available medical care. He recommends that BP set up clinics with trained professionals who can treat the type of symptoms cleanup workers and coastal residents are dealing with. And BP agrees. They set up clinics all across the Gulf region. But unfortunately, they do not live up to Harbit's visions. People were given the names of a particular clinic to go to. They would show up at the clinic. Um, they would not find a qualified person, and they would get referred back to their primary care physician. Sort of a big waste of time and a big waste of money. And so a lot of these workers and residents are still left in the lurch. So if I'm a cleanup worker and I'm experiencing symptoms that I suspect might be as a result of my work on the oil spill, and I show up to get care, I'm essentially told we're not really equipped to handle the type of symptoms that might be a result of the oil spill. Correct. They're just providing primary care. So they're treating people's runny noses, giving Tylenol for headaches, and sending them on their way. There are no specialists there, which is you know, specifically what he, you know, had recommended. If there is a spill, there should be a 24-hour response time with the people on the site setting up not only monitoring of pollution into the air and water, but also treatment from physicians who are experienced in treating and who know what they're looking at when they see it. There should be a federal function which puts a team on the ground of statisticians, epidemiologists, physicians, and associated helpers in the sciences. Um, and I recommended that there be some sort of a, a unit set up under the Surgeon General of the United States, which would allow for cross state line licensing of uh, responders who would respond immediately to incidents like the uh, spill. That never went anywhere. The situation Dr. Harbit describes in the aftermath of the spill, this lack of preparedness to handle health issues, is puzzling. 
It's especially puzzling considering the substance the VU workers were tasked with cleaning. We'll take a break. More after this. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you about another podcast to check out called Drilled. Drilled is a true crime podcast about climate change that's hosted by award-winning investigative journalist Amy Westervelt and reported by a team of climate journalists. The podcast investigates the various obstacles that have kept the world from responding to climate change. You can listen now to the latest episodes of Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Crude, or crude oil, or oil, take your pick, is one of the most rich, complex substances on planet Earth. It's a mixture of several thousand organic compounds, and each region of the world has its own unique blend. In the Gulf, it's called Louisiana Sweet Crude. Crude oil's refined ingredients are present in over 6,000 products. Asphalt, paint, lubricants, cosmetics, toothbrushes, dentures, guitar strings, insect repellent, and pharmaceuticals, to name a few. Crude has an aroma, a sweet smell, some say a pleasant smell. When I was a kid, my father would bring me out on construction sites. I'd watch him operate excavators and backhoes, chugging diesel into the air. When I smell oil, I think of that. It took time and persistence, but Joey Yerkes finally convinced a doctor to treat him. You know, I had chemical pneumonia is what happened. Chemical pneumonia occurs when someone inhales substances that are toxic to the lungs. The more severe the symptoms, the greater likelihood of permanent damage. If you'll remember, Dr. Harbit said a lack of qualified physicians in the Gulf was a problem. That lines up with Joey's experience with one doctor who treated him. Well, then the antibiotics he gave me were, they made it worse, right? So that I shouldn't have had those antibiotics with chemical pneumonia. He didn't know any different. You know, he, again, wasn't a doctor that usually deals with this stuff, right? In 2014, for most people outside the Gulf, the oil spill was a distant memory. BP's stock price had nearly recovered to pre-blowout levels. Cleanup worker John Moss had moved from Mississippi to Tennessee and sought medical treatment for his bouts of breathlessness. They did a, a barrage of tests on me and diagnosed me with chemically induced asthma. What did they explain to you chemically induced they, they asthma was? They explained to me that I had a reactive airways disease okay. and that um, I had scar tissue in my lungs and that um, my 
breathing test and lung capacity test showed uh, 40% function. My oxygen level in my blood is in the 80s on a normal basis. And when you get to, I think 89 is the number, um, then you have to sleep with oxygen, which I'm forced to do for the last eight or nine years now. And um, I have to have those inhalers with me all the time. They're 75 bucks each, um, even with insurance. I knew something was up. I had my lip node was swollen by my neck. I thought it was a bug bite or something. It took about five years for Caleb Bro to find out what was happening to him. That's when the dizzy spells started to get really intense where I felt like I was going to faint and pass out. And uh, I went to the doctor and had a CT scan. And that's when we first discovered my neck. You know, he said I had lymphoma. Lymphoma is an aggressive blood cancer that grows in the cells of the immune system. It's in the same category of cancer as leukemia, which killed Cherie Kerner's husband, Frank Stewart. So after they, you know, did the biopsy in my neck, then I did a scan. It's like every scan I did got worse. Everybody's like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then it was like, okay, yeah, well, it's all over, which I felt. I knew, I can tell. I knew it was all over before I did the scans. And then they were like, I did the uh, bone marrow. Well, it's not going to be in your bones. Well, it was in my bones. Oh, <laughs> so, Lord. <laughs> something I noticed in the cleanup workers, when talking about terrible things that happened to them, at times they'd look at it all and just laugh like Caleb did there. I had a tumor around my aorta, and that was the biggest one I had in my body. Then I had one behind my heart and lungs. <laughs> so, and I mean that definitely when you hear that news that you have cancer, um, it was definitely a shock. And how old were you when you were diagnosed? At 39. 39, okay. Mm -hmm. 39 is an uncommon age to get non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. People over 65 are much more likely to be diagnosed. So were you thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm young. Like, what, what's going on? Exactly what I was thinking. I mean, yeah. I, I just, I didn't realize, I didn't, I mean, nobody, nobody thinks they're going to get cancer, right? It's always somebody else. You, oh, you hear so-and-so had cancer. It's always somebody else. Well, um, when it hit home and I thought about my age, I thought about my little girls, you know, like them having to grow up without a dad, like, that's when things got real for me, you know? And I had to, like, picture them growing up without me. It just wasn't a good feeling, you know? I had to actually sit them down and explain what was going on and also explain that it's possible daddy might not be around, you know? I had to tell my wife that at the time that, you know, maybe she can find somebody else, you know? And, I mean, like I said, that was definitely uh, one of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life. But then... You start to try to figure out, okay, how did this happen? Where did this come from? Caleb started racking his brain to find a possible cause for his cancer. Definitely when it hit home for me is three months later when my captain, uh, Todd Dufresne, he was diagnosed. Mm. With, so it was non-Hopkins lymphoma B-cell is what we both have. I have small B-cell, he has large B-cell. But the both lymphoma B-cell Three months apart. So three months later, um, the captain on the very same vessel, the very same boat that I was on, gets diagnosed with the same cancer. To some, that might be a coincidence. 
but not to Caleb or his captain. That's when we both kind of looked at each other and were like, we know exactly where this came from. Crude oil smell, that sweet aroma, comes from benzene. Benzene is what's known as a volatile organic compound, so-called because it evaporates in air. At high concentrations, some volatile organic compounds in crude are associated with adverse health effects. Benzene, specifically, is a known carcinogen. Exposure to benzene has been linked with a higher risk of cancer, especially leukemia, and potentially others, like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Health risks of exposure to volatile organic compounds were known in 2010. Caleb Bro believes exposure to crude oil during his work on the BP oil spill is the cause of his lymphoma. I had someone explain it to me one time, and they explained like your body is like a, if you imagine your body as a glass of water or a glass, say an empty glass, and you have a certain amount to the top of the glass of a toxicity level in your body, and your body reaches that toxicity level at the top of the glass, it's just going to start spilling over. And I think that's where the point my body was. I think we all hit our toxicity level out there, and um, I think it just started spilling over. Now, as far as the toxicity of the environment the VU participants were working in, they were told there were safety measures in place. They told us that, the, you know, the air quality would be tested before they sent us out. Uh, so I guess we just kind of trusted that we'd be okay. The message from authorities was, we're taking air samples. If an area has unsafe levels of toxicity, we won't send you there. But Joey Yerkes and John Moss don't trust the air sampling because, for one, crude oil wasn't the only chemical compound they were working around. There was also the dispersant, Corexit. We never saw a raw crude, as far as I know. 90% of what got to shore had been sprayed one way or another. John and Joey believe the oil they interacted with was most often a cocktail a combination of crude oil and dispersant. Mostly what we found, we thought, was already semi-dispersed somewhere along the ways. Whether it was sprayed at the wellhead or whether it was hit by the shrimp boats, whether it was burnt offshore by the shrimp, who knows, right? But this is the stuff that was washing, you know, coming into Destin. And manually cleaning dispersed oil wasn't the only way they reported being exposed to Corexit. Some of the VU workers were sometimes like treasure hunters. Their job was to go out on the water, find oil, report its location, then drive away to safety, while airplanes sprayed Corexit on the slick they reported. Well, according to some of the cleanup workers I spoke with, this procedure didn't always go as planned. We got a radio call from Incident Command and they gave us new coordinates to go to so that they could spray that area that we were working in. And um, we went about five or seven miles to a different location. And uh, I'll be damned if that thing didn't come and spray us at that location. John Moss reports being personally sprayed directly with the dispersant core exit by aircraft. 
isn't there uh, meant to be a period of time for you to basically escape? Well, we did escape. They gave us plenty of time. And they came and sprayed where we escaped too. What does that demonstrate to you? Was it incompetence or? Incompetence at the highest level. Joey Yerkes says he saw something similar. One of my friends who was still active in the program, he was offshore. We used to communicate every day. I would be at my condo and he called me one day and said, hey, I'm offshore and there's all kinds of oil. Um, And at that time, I saw one of the 130s come over from my, you know, close to my condo, fly out his direction. I said, there's a plane headed your direction right now. He said, I just called it in. I said, well, there's a plane headed your direction. They got sprayed directly from the plane. So they they called They got sprayed. They got sprayed by the plane. He and his deckhand got sick, and they came straight to the dock. We reached out to the Coast Guard requesting an interview or written comment to address questions we had about the use of dispersants during the cleanup. They didn't make anyone available to comment, nor did they provide written comment on these questions. When you get sprayed, can you compare it to uh, something that most people would understand, like rainfall? Would it be a drizzling? Would it be, what kind of rainfall would it be? A fine mist. Fine mist. A very fine mist, like um, like hairspray okay. kind of mist. Okay. Uh, you could hardly see it. John Moss told me that the effects of being sprayed were immediate. I feel like I got tear gassed. Anywhere you have moisture on your body, under your arms, uh, under your neck, it, it burns. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a very uh, strong chemical. A strong chemical is what John calls Corexit. But that wasn't what it was called in the Deepwater Horizon story that was told to the public in 2010. Remember, Unified Command wasn't shy about the amount they were spraying. End of the day today, we, we will have applied over 100,000 gallons of dispersant. We're approaching uh, the million gallon mark. We successfully applied 42,000 gallons of disper- dispersant. This almost doubles yesterday's total, which had doubled the day before. Remember, they were so enthusiastic about it, they improvised an unprecedented method. We have also a new technique identified uh, yesterday afternoon. They sprayed hundreds of thousands of gallons directly into the leaking wellhead. We're going to now go to a novel, a novel, absolutely novel idea. 5,000 feet below the surface, deploying dispersants on the outflow from the well. And it wasn't called a strong chemical by NALCO, corrects its manufacturer. Remember that news report from the time. The toxicity of this particular product is at least 25 times less toxic than common dishwashing soap that everybody uses in their house on a day-to-day basis. Corexit's manufacturers told the public the dispersant was less harmful than household cleaning supplies. And according to John Moss, he was told this as well. BP kept using um, the same terminology, uh, don't drink it, don't swim in it. It's as safe as Dawn dish soap. John has a theory for why this specific pitch, the Dawn dish soap story, was chosen. Do you know why they, they, they have compared it to Dawn? Tell me. In, in, the, in the maritime industry, um, Dawn is used for mild, small spills. 
if you're at the fuel dock and you pump too much diesel in and it overflows into the water, you're subjected to a tremendous fine if you're caught. Or you take Dawn in a spray bottle and you spray it and it's poof, it's gone. It's a common tool in the industry. Anybody who spills oil, gas, diesel in the water uses Dawn. It makes it go away instantly. So the message is we're doing what you typically do. Right. We're just doing it at a much day. larger yeah, scale. You do, it every, we, you do it every day, right, kind of thing. And so we related to that, you know, and um, it, it, it couldn't have been uh, uh, more poor advice. Joey Yerkes has kept a lot of documents, videos, and pictures from his time on the spill. He showed me some photos to help me get a better sense of the conditions they worked in every day. How long has it been since you've seen these photographs? Oh, uh, 2010? <laughs> you know, back during the program, yeah, I, I have not um, seen these in many years, so. Oh, wow. This, that's all oil, huh? That's all petroleum, yep, that's all oil. When the cleanup workers say that their boats were in oil, they mean it. It's not just a couple streaks here and there. And that's what the shrimp boat is is dragging, trying to clean up. So that that's almost... I mean, this whole thing is a sheen then, yes? Yep. Yeah. I scanned through more photographs and came across a shot of cleanup workers on their boat. And they didn't look to me like a group of people who were prepared to work around volatile organic compounds. Some people were wearing rubber gloves, but no masks here. Um, well, so we weren't allowed to wear masks in the program. Not allowed? No, the VOA program, we were not allowed to wear a mask. How, how was that articulated to you? Um, if you're caught wearing a mask, you'll be removed from the program. Who said that to you? Um, our supervisor at the dock that was overseeing the in and outs of the boats each day and collecting up our data. Huh. So, you know, in July, some of us were starting to complain. Um, you know, headaches. We've been driving around in the fumes all day. You know, not to mention they were spraying the oil and it was dispersing it. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It was, it was bothering us and we wanted to wear something. You know, and I even asked, really, I remember asking, can I just go to Home Depot and buy the paper mask? Answer was no. If you show up with a mask or you're caught offshore riding around in the program with a mask on, you will be removed from the program, period. And how did you I didn't ask another question. You didn't ask? No, I don't want to get fired. Why not? Because I was making money. I'm not going to say no to the money. So we kept doing what we were doing. Air quality monitoring aside, given that crude oil contains volatile organic compounds, I had a hard time understanding why respirators wouldn't be provided just in case, and I was completely at a loss as to why they might be explicitly banned. I thought maybe Joey's account was an isolated incident, so I asked the others. Did you all think about maybe wearing some masks or some respirators at the time? So we didn't have that. And it seemed like we didn't have time. I mean, we had, so we had like Tyvek and, and rubber gloves and, you know. What's Tyvek? What's that? It, it's a Tyvek suit. So it's like a protective suit that you, like sometimes you'll see painters wear it or okay. people working with different uh, chemicals. They'll put on this white Tyvek suit. We had that. 
but at the time we had like sleeves, these Tyvek sleeves that would kind of come up past your elbow into your glove. And then we had these gloves that pretty much looked like this dishwashing gloves, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as masks, we didn't have respirators. I asked the same questions and got the same responses over and over and over. So do you ever directly ask for a mask or a respirator? Oh, absolutely not. Um, if <laughs> a few guys did, and they were immediately decommissioned, their boat was fired, and they were done. Just by just for asking? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they they made it very clear that uh, if you donned a respirator, that was a negative photogenic opportunity. How did they? You're using very specific language. Um, how was this articulated to you? In our morning safety meetings, these young kids, twenty twenty five years old were explaining different safety protocol to us and that was one thing they covered was uh if you donned a respirator you're fired did these kids give you the reason or did they just say look you can't wear it or you're going to be fired they did give a reason they said bp will not accept that um they they will not accept uh photographs of people donned in ppes because it's not toxic. Okay. There's nothing wrong. It's as safe as Dawn dish soap. Why do you need a respirator working with Dawn dish soap? Again, BP did not respond to our request for comment on the cleanup workers' statements. If the cleanup workers weren't allowed to wear respirators, if exposure to crude or Corexit or both was causing health problems, then how is it possible that Unified Command just continued spraying? Were they unaware that there was a problem? Or were there warning signs that something was wrong? And if so, how were they handled? Were they ignored? Next time on Ripple, we're going to look into all that. Ripple is produced by Western Sound and APM Studios. It's created by me, Dan Leon, for Western Sound. Ben Adair is the executive producer. Erica Krauss is the executive producer for APM Studios. Ripple is written and hosted by me, Dan Leon. Betsy Shepard is the senior reporter and producer. Colin McNulty is the editor. Original music is composed by me, Sound design by me and Alex McGinnis. Alex mixed and mastered the show. Sarah Dealey and Stella Hartman are the associate producers. Research and fact-checking by Savannah Wright, with additional fact-checking by Betsy Shepard. Additional reporting by Haley Fox. Nick Ryan is APM Studios' senior production manager. And the executives in charge for APM Studios are Joanne Griffith, Alex Shafford, and Chandra Kavati. To learn more about what you've heard, visit our website at ripplepodcast.org.